This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Tune in for my live webinar tonight. Um, it's going to be going on Eastern Standard Time, 3 p.m. So you can click something below if you're on Facebook. Otherwise, if you're on Torah Anytime, just send a send a uh, email to support at RabbiYomTov.com. So check that out. That's going to be amazing. It's on relationships. That's tonight, 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Uh, what time is that here in Israel, for those who want to tune in? 10 p.m. And that's going to be fully interactive, meaning I see you, I hear your questions, we deal with it together. I'm just trying to recreate, I'm not trying, I'm recreating this classroom online. So it should be exciting. And, uh, and not to mention, uh, I'm doing a webinar series where you, you buy four webinars on Sundays, and that's called Living Inspired. And that's going on this coming Sunday, uh, Eastern, 2 p.m., 2 p.m. Sunday, and uh, and then uh, here in Israel, that's late, 9 p.m. Okay, everybody, and um, let's get started. So, so what we're talking about is is how God creates the world, and and that's an amazing topic because, for example, if you know physics, so they know that the whole world's made of light energy. Everything's made of light energy, and the the world we live in is made of matter. It's not made of, we don't see light energy. You see matter. And how light energy becomes matter is, is mysterious and relegated to theory. It's a theor- it's, that's why it's called theoretical physics, because they're trying to figure out how light energy becomes matter. And so there's a lot of theory about how light energy becomes matter. Now, in Judaism, we also say that the world's made of light energy. Hey, we got that in common with the physics community. And we also say the world's made of matter. And the discussion of how light energy becomes matter, that's a discussion that Judaism goes deep into. And it's not relegated to theory at all. We actually have a tremendous amount of detail that is in agreement amongst all the Kabbalists, happens to coexist with the teachings of other native, you know, uh, uh, medicine chiefs, shamans, and you know, leaders of tribes and stuff that understand the similar, uh, similar understandings to the Kabbalists, if not almost identical. Only they don't have the kind of detail that we're dealing with. We're dealing with tremendous amount of detail. Um, the difference between them and us is that they, they divine it from below, and we have a prophetic experience with, a, with a, um, an understanding from prophecy, which is up-down. Divining information is from down up. Prophecy comes up-down. And so we are an, we're an up-down tradition, while all the other tribes in the world are down-up traditions. And again, I'm only discussing like uh, real Aboriginal tribal people who know all this information. Now, the so our discussion is well, how does God do it? How does God actually do it? Do, you know, not theory. Like what what is the, what do the mystics say? And so the answer is is that the light energy actually filters through worlds. The light energy filters to worlds, just like, for example, if you look on this board, you'll see someone's writing, which does not belong there. Hmm. What was our saying yesterday? If you want to be good at the big stuff, <laughs> if you want to be good at the big stuff, you got to be good at the little stuff. So, the. Um, if you, oh, I don't need a pen. If you look at the board, you see all that light over there? 
And watch this. I'm going to block the light. And you see the image of my fingers over there, the shadow of my fingers right there? So there's an image there. there there's, I'm creating something there. How? By limiting light. By me filtering out a certain amount of light, you have now the image of my fingers. Take away the filter, you have only light. So the world that's made of light energy, well, it st stands to reason. This isn't where they get the tradition. But for us in this room, it stands to reason that there must be, it must be the light is being filtered out. Well, comes along the Kabbalistic tradition and says the same thing, that the light is actually being filtered out by what are called olamos. Olamos, which makes sense because the word olam has three major meanings. One of them is world. We're talking about how God made the world. Another way, another meaning is hidden. You know, the word for hidden is alam, al ayin lamed mem, it's the same root. So the word for hidden is also olam, which makes all the sense in the world because the word for hidden and the word for world is the same thing because the only way you can have a world is if God were to somehow filter himself out of things, so to speak, because guess, guess what the olamot are made of? Well, they're also made of him, right? God doesn't have Home Depot upstairs. You know, God didn't go to Costco to create the world. All there was was God. So even the filters are made of God. But the filtering of that light creates the possibility of image. So then there can be an image. And what happens is through myriads and myriads and myriads and myriads of olamos, of worlds, or parallel universes, that God is ultimately filtering light through, well, it starts to weave. After you filter enough of it, you get something called, well, what does happen? You tell me. What happens when you filter out enough light? What do you get? When you filter out a lot of light, what do you get? Darkness. You get darkness. And that's why our world here is called by the Kabbalists, whoops, our world here is called by the Kabbalists, Olam Ha, what? <laughs> yeah, well, we call it that too, but it's called Olam HaChoshech, the world of darkness. Our world is called the world of darkness. Now, don't jump to conclusions. We're not saying anything negative. It's not called the world of darkness because it's negative. There's nothing negative about it. Is there anything negative about darkness? No, just an absence of light. Well, could it be negative? Yes, it could be very negative. Like, for example, if you're trying to get across your room, and you wind up standing on your grandchildren's Tonka trunk, truck and, and you go flying. So darkness is dangerous. Darkness has its risks. Light is, you know, certainly kinder, clearer. But darkness in, in and of itself isn't necessarily bad. Like, for example, this is uh, someone's guitar. The guitar is this. Do not touch under any circumstances. Well, I won't be touching that guitar. But the... Uh, <laughs> But, you know, you, you can take a lot of light out of that thing, but it only exists in that there's been so much light filtered out till there was finally wood and metal. Not in that order. There probably first was metal and then there was wood because generally vegetation would come after mineral. And so the metal is the strings. It looks like a steel string guitar. Is that your guitar by any chance? He ain't got no guitar. He plays my guitar. Or was that my guitar you just took? Whose guitar is it? What? Do you know whose guitar that is? He said the one in the case you want. Oh, that's my guitar in the case. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah, you don't know whose guitar that is, obviously. 
I'm not going to ask you a third time. What happens is the light gets filtered out and it ultimately becomes darkness. But darkness isn't necessarily bad. It's just an absence of light. But you couldn't live in this world without it. Your skin's made of it. Anything physical is obviously the weaving of... Meaning when you, when you filter out enough light, it begins to weave itself into physicality. Our physical world is made of the weaving of worlds that filtered out enough light till there can finally be physical objects. Just like, I mean, this is kind of a crass example of the shadow of my hand. But when you're looking at a motion picture, you know, you're looking at, a, what's that BBC thing, Planet Earth? Is that what it's called? It's like a really amazing, high-tech, you know, really high-resolution film on the planet. You know, it's pretty amazing shots there. So, but what is that ultimately? How do they film that? It's, it's just a filtering of light. You know, they're just filtering out light, ultimately. And look how gorgeous. You know, and, and then you do 3D filming. Yeah, you guys ever been to a movie in 3D? Uh, what was that great movie? Um, it was like another planet over there. It was a really long movie. Avatar, yeah. Avatar. Those were some amazing scenes. And, and you see, even though it truly was 2D, if you were in the theater, even though you might have been wearing 3D glasses, but even though it was 2D, you get sucked in there. Just like we get sucked in here, don't we? Tamir, we get locked in very easily. You know, it's pretty scary how locked in people get make some really poor decisions when they get locked into this world. You know, because because when you stay Kabbalistic, Ellie Mary, you realize the more Kabbalistic you are, the better chance you stand at any given hour of staying connected. Whereas because this place sucks you in, even a two dimensional film or even a book can get you crying. You know, it, it's got you in there. And just speaking to somebody can draw you into somewhere very deep. And, and, uh, but when you stay tuned into the fact that everything's ultimately made of this light, and this, this world's only really the absence of the light, as filtered through what we call the Olamos. Everyone practice that term? Olamos together? Olamos. Come on, let's get active here. Olamos, right? How do you say world in Hebrew? Olam. Try that, Olam. How do you say hidden in Hebrew? Olam. How do you say forever in Hebrew? Olam. It also means, I mentioned it means three things. Probably means even more, but three things. And the, the third one is forever. <laughs> Why is the world, which is finite, called forever? The answer is because it's not really finite. It's just filtered light from an infinite being who's filtering it out of himself because there's no Home Depot. So if the filters are made of God, that means this is made of God. And so the world, which is really just hidden, divine, hidden God, is eternal. Which is super cool information, because now you realize you live forever, which we say every day. That God planted in us eternity. Life, like Olam, eternal. Nata, he planted inside of us. He's put eternal life in us. And the more you're tuned in to what I'm sharing today, because, by the way, when is all this happening? When is God filtering out his light into our world? When's he doing that? When's he doing it? Yeah, right, creating. When? All the time, perpetually. 
It's always happening now. So the more tuned in you are to what I've shared so far, and then add the time element that is only happening now, which is the only possibility that it could be happening, well then you, you really get in touch with eternity here in this world. So then you can actually start looking at your decisions and say, well, do, do I want, is this part of eternity or is it not? Well, if you're looking at a finite craft beer, you know, which looks quite finite, you know, you, <laughs> it starts and it ends, you know, like it, it's, uh, it's delicious, but it looks pretty finite. Well, you've got to, you better make it infinite. And there's ways to make beer infinite. And I'm, I think I'm actually becoming quite an expert at that. The, the way you make beer infinite is you start with a blessing and you focus deeply on each word. And, and think about the words, shehakol, the blessing on beer, shehakol, that everything, not only the beer, everything, the glass, the people in the pub, everything, shehakol, nihiyah, comes into existence, nihiyah. And you'll notice Hasidim, who are more into Kabbalah, say nihiyah instead of nihiyeh. Because nihiyeh is more lens towards past tense. And nihiyah lends towards now. And it's fine to do either one. You don't have to be Hasidic or not to do that. You can just say nihiyah. I switched it once I found out the Kabbalistic importance of switching it way before I was a Hasid. Okay, Hasidics came after that. Shako nihiyah. Everything comes to be. Bidvaroi. Bidvaroi means with his words. Why? Because, well, the worlds were, the worlds, all those worlds, the Olamos, were made of, they're made of words. They're all made of words. And so, well, that's, that's a good start to a beer. That's, was supposed to be finite. It was a good start to it. But then, you taste it. And if it's a well-crafted beer, I'm not talking about lager. Lager is a sport drink. But if it's a well-crafted beer, so then the dance, it is dancing, it dances on your taste buds while it's dancing. And by the way, you don't have to think beer, anyone, like you can think white Zinfandel, you can think orange juice, you can think of a, a, your favorite smoothie. I, I don't care what, you, what you're drinking. Or if it's a steak, uh, it could be anything, as long as it's kosher. And, oh, which, by the way, is part of its infinity, is make sure it's kosher. Check that it's kosher. Check the hexure before you bite. Yeah, if as long as it's kosher, which means uh, I, I just want to talk about that because I realize that would be very important to discuss, is that something that's kosher is called mutar, right? Mutar or heter, it's, it's permissible. But what does the word mutar really mean? What is that root word, like matir? What does it mean? It means to release. It means it's released. Like this water is released water. You know, if you took a little pig juice and took a dropper and dropped in one drop of pig juice in this, it's now what's called asur. And the word asur means forbidden, but it also means bound up. It's tied up. Where is it tied up? Into the further extremities of the dark side, meaning, meaning there's neutral dark side. It's this. And then there's extremities of the dark side. And that, we'd never know what it is except the Torah lists for us, thankfully, 365 categories of dark side, so, which is the most amazing thing. I mean, you should, be, you should be doing backflips when you walk out of this class. Enjoy that you have negative commandments, and I'm sure you're really excited about being told what not to do. But the, 
but you should be doing backflips. You realize how confused our generation is. How confused our generation is. It is amazing to know what not to do. Yeah, I mean, that is great. Yeah, as a surfer, you know, I've showed up at a lot of exotic surf spots where you're looking at these waves just going like, we're going to die. But then you realize, how do we even get out there? How do we get out there? There's a razor-sharp reef everywhere we look. And the answer is you need to speak to a local who tells you how to time it, where you're going to get in, and where you also got to get out. I've been surfing in a spot where is in Indonesia where at high tide, where the wave eventually just smashes into a giant cliff that goes like the whole entire length of the coastline, where when you ride back, when you, sorry, when you're done surfing, and you got to be very careful because you don't want to be too exhausted before this, is that you're in the middle of riding your wave, you're right by, the, this cliff is like maybe 20 feet from you, you're on a wave two times the height of this ceiling, if not more, and you're riding your wave, and this is when your last ride of the day, you have to know when to do this, but at the right time, you cut the hardest right you could ever cut on a wave. You just go like, and you go flying through a cave. <laughs> and then you climb bamboo ladders up cliffs to get to the top. Now, if you miss that, it's not like there's another option for a really long time. So you don't surf there like normally surfers. We're such gluttons. We, like, we surf till we're, we're what we call spaghetti arms, meaning till you're just exhausted. You can't paddle. So that particular spot is called Uluwatu. You can Google it. They just had a pro tour, and the pro tour was just there. So, um, which is a good news. Normally, people are upset about that, but apparently the Australians have been throwing too much garbage there, so the, they made an honor of the world tour going there, a gigantic countrywide garbage pickup in the island of Bali, which is called, and they even called it a Bali Protect, this particular surf contest. Anyway... But you literally had to do that. Now, if you miss the cave, you're now in a river going south. And so you have to paddle back out, which is not always easy, in 15, 20-foot waves. And now you've got to paddle all the way up the point, and now you've got to paddle into another one of these bombers and get your right at the right time. You've got to cut your right into that cave and surf into the cave and then, you know, climb up the ladders. Now, why in the world are we talking about this? How do we get on that? What? Oh. When you're doing something you love, like surfing, and, there's, and there, there's high risk, you're happy to meet someone who tells you exactly what not to do. You get that? Knowing what not to do is what enabled the surf session. And I had to know a lot to surf there. And there's been other places where I had to know much more than I had to know at Uluwatu. Uluwatu was simple compared to some spots I surfed, where you really needed a map of how to get in and out. And, and with higher consequences. And, and I love the sport, but it's on, I'm only enabled by it by the what not to do. And the same with my mountain biking, there's what not to do. And the same with my yoga, I do yoga every day, just actually came from yoga. And there's a lot of what not to do in yoga. You know, you don't want to get hurt. You're doing some crazy stuff when you're doing yoga. It's not worth it to do the wrong, the wrong things. So if Torah, if Torah is telling you what not to do, and you got this divine book from the, the owner himself of the creation. So, re, meaning he owns this place. He knows how to deal with it. You know, it's like me meeting the local guy at the surf spot. Like, you're, you have a relationship with the, with the actual, the owner of the place. And he's telling you, like, stay away from this kind of stuff. Well, that makes a lot of sense. And, by the way, you could never have a Torah without 
a national revelation. Why? Because it just asks for too much. I mean, have you ever thought about the ask of Judaism? What is it asking you to do? It's like it never ends. It's the endless list of stuff. It's just asking way too much, and especially if you're a teenager, my goodness. Like it's asking way too much. It makes your father look gentle, you know, because Torah is asking a hell of a lot more than any father ever asked his kid. You can imagine a father asking his kid to keep Yiddish guy. That's like double whammy. But it's, uh, it's really a big, big ask. And an ask like Torah requires a national prophecy. I can prove it to you right now. Like, let's say, anyone willing to be the example here? Raise your hand if you're willing to be the example. Yeah, Ari. Ari goes down to the Kotel. He says, God, you know, if you really exist, you know, give me some prophecy, you know. And, and God's like, well, I haven't done this in like 2,500 years, but okay. And <laughs> Ari's like, you know. And then he, he comes up, decides, you know, maybe I'll go check out Yom Tov's class. Comes in here, a little lady walks in the door. All of our, like, hair stands up. You know, your hair is like, like prophets walked in the room. We're like, we all turn around, Ari! And he's like, I got prophecy, help! You know, and, and we all say, like, Ari, what did God tell you? Now, even if God told him one thing that would at all cramp our style, I'll tell you exactly what we'd say to Ari if he, like, let's say he said, uh, let's say he said we all have to give 10% of our income for the rest of our lives to him. You know, that cramps my style, for sure. Is it cramp your style to give every amount of money you get for the rest of your life goes to Ari? Yeah. She's checking him out. She's like, well, maybe. So the, um, she's considering it. Uh, he is single. And the, anyway, so, no, but that would be all of it. So but he said 10%. Right, he said 10%. And so, of course, everyone in the room is like looking at Ari like, what else did he say? You know, like, you say anything that we actually want to hear? So what we'd say is if God wanted us to give 10% of our income to you, he would have told us, not you. Meaning, if a religion, and no offense to the world religions, and I'm letting Ellie Mayer enjoy himself for a moment, if, if the world religions, if the world religions had a big ask, well, let's put it like this. World religions have a very small ask in general because you're telling people stuff that they themselves didn't have any experience of. So the ask has to be pretty small. In as much as you add to the ask, you have to add enforcement. You've got to add force, yeah, meaning machetes and stuff. You've got to start bringing in a culture of death and stuff. Not to mention freaking people out with afterlife stuff like that they're going to burn in hell. Or something like you got to add that too. You got to add the whole burn in hell business because that'll. I mean, I personally, I mean, I'm just going to say this for a minute. But uh, who wants to be in charge of stopping me when I after this rant? How long do you want to stop this? One minute. So, so there's a. You know, whenever you're convincing someone of someone, some someone of something, you always want to reserve for them a huge amount of free will and the choice. You want to give them, you want to keep things even. Why? Because uh, you know it'll be more in a minute now that I'm on free will. You want to make it even, as even as possible. I mean, I want to convince you of something, but I want to keep it as even as possible so that you get reward. I don't want to rip you off. I don't want to get you in a spot where you're getting ripped off because if I overdo it. And now you're stuck doing it out of some fear or whatever. So what is that called? There's a term for that in, in coercion. 
<laughs> which is another word for it, but what's it called? begins with an M-A, I'm sure feminists love this word, M-A-N, right? Manipulation, right? It's called manipulation. And so you want to limit any manipulation. You don't want manipulation when you're trying to get someone to do something because they lose the reward of doing it, because you're manipulating them. Well, can there be a bigger manipulation than playing with the number one fear of human beings? The number one fear of human beings is death. That's the number one fear. It's the great unknown. And all of us are going there. Every one of us will die. And that is the great fear. And so as soon as you start mentioning hell, you are, in, you are a, a shameless manipulator. A shameless manipulator. Talking about an afterlife which you can't prove. They have to die to prove you wrong. You know, it is extremely manipulative. And that's why you'll notice in Judaism it almost never comes up. Like you could come, tell me, you can come to a thousand classes here. We're not talking about the afterlife. Okay, we're keeping your free will well intact. And it's not like we know much more. The real reason we don't say it is because we don't know. Not that we don't know it exists. We don't know what it is. It's something beyond our, our grasp. The only clue we get to it is when Joseph turns to his brothers and he says, Ani Yosef. And his brothers are just like, boom, boom. And like the entire history of their lives, having completely screwed over their brother, comes racing into their brains on what they had done. And like their whole life and all their moves, everything that happened with them in Egypt and went back to their father and the famine and like everything came rushing up to them in a moment. And it's the same thing that when you die, all you're going to hear is, you're not going to hear Ani Yosef because God's name isn't Yosef. You're just going to hear the words, Anochi Hashem, I am God. And you're just going to be like, whoa. And that's why I'm focusing this particular class, dedicating this class to seeing beyond the 3D, highly luring physical world around us, which is really just made of light energy if you're into physics or Kabbalah. And so you want to see it as it, as it is and not get sucked up into it and start making stupid decisions because it it's got plenty of stupid decisions that are available to us. Okay, back to our subject is, uh, um, how am I doing time-wise, by the way? Oh, I got plenty of time, Baruch Hashem. So yes, speak to Rabbi Nekomer. What's that? Tell me he had great timing interrupting my class. No, but tell him those words. It's for fun. It's an inside joke because of something that happened yesterday during his class, which was my fault. Okay. We were just WhatsApping about, like, interrupting each other's classes. I was the perpetrator. So... Someone turn the fan back up. Josh, can you turn the fan back down, please? How did that happen? It's just a lower button on the air conditioning console, lower right. There's a little, no, that, yeah, yeah, lower right. You just turned it off. Can you turn the AC back on and hit the lower right button? Yeah, you got it. You got it on low? Thank you. So, yeah. What are we talking about? I was in the middle of a class and we started talking about Manipulation, like. Go ahead, you can go ahead, man. You gotta go. Yeah. You can go. go we know a couple of hints of the afterlife. Like Shabbat is like Olam right? 
know, a couple of things. She's got a lot of things. Oh, okay. Tons of things. But you're saying we don't we don't know the concept. What do you just one of the We don't know what you get. Okay. But if it's like Shabbat, then you would get. You said maybe the, you mean the amount. If it's like Shabbat, you feel you. It's like overeating. Just kidding. If it's like Shabbat. Shabbat's supposed to be like one sixtieth of it, oh, okay. but I have a feeling that none of us actually know what Shabbat is. Okay. You know, we all think Shabbat's like good food and family. You know? But uh, I mean, like I know my Rebbe, for example, it doesn't have anything to do with that. You know, and he he doesn't even start eating until around midnight when he makes kiddush. He hasn't been doing good food or family at that. point. You know, he's been like. No one's really sure where the Rebbe's are until they finally come out and make Kiddush. But, uh, but I have a feeling we don't know what Shabbat's about. Which is cool, because it's awesome anyway. <laughs> you know, and you study, and you study, and you study, and you learn more and more about Shabbat. And, uh, but, but it's definitely not about what we think it's about. It's, or let's say it like this, it's also what we think it's about, but it's much, much more. And why do you think it's a death? I mean, it, can't, it says it's a death penalty to not keep it. So, like, that doesn't make any sense because, like, I love family and I love food. But there's got to be, you know, that, that, I can't even, can you imagine, like, you better come over and eat, you know, with the family or you're going to be put to death. You know, like, obviously there's some major stuff we don't understand about Shabbat. Um, but one thing's for sure is anytime there's death, it never gets killed for not keeping Shabbat. You realize that. We don't kill people. The Torah says death penalty. But why does the Torah mention death penalty about these things that no one would ever get killed for? So the answer is to let you know that your soul would be better off there than down here in a car on Shabbat. That's all. It's just saying your soul would be better off there already, meaning you'd be better off up there in the soul world than being still in your body but a cigarette in your hand on Shabbat. That's all it's saying. Your soul would be, better be there than s- sending off that WhatsApp message on Shabbat. That's all it's saying. It, no one's getting killed for breaking Shabbat or any of the other things it says that you get killed for. Now, all it's saying, and by the way, I happen to know this because we study a lot of Talmud, which is how you actually keep the Torah. So when we study the tractate called Sanhedrin, it goes into all the details what it takes to actually mete out the death penalty. Well, it turns out that it's physically impossible to ever kill anybody in a court of law. That you can't actually kill anybody. So why is the Torah full of death penalties if Jewish law is that you can never actually kill anybody? It's crazy. Like one of the laws is if everyone unanimously agrees he's guilty, he's innocent. If unanimous guilty means he's innocent. You know, so like, it can't be unanimous. But if everyone unanimously agrees he's innocent, he's innocent. Oh, that's interesting. So it's got to be like some kind of argument whether he's innocent or not. There's got to be some people who believe he's not innocent. Uh, I'm sorry, I just need one more reminder. Um, Thursdays, we feed a family. There's a rabbi who comes and brings, uh, he helps a family buy meat and drinks so I just want a reminder at the end of this class sometimes I forget and I go outside to the rabbi and he's like what happened with it and I'm like I forgot and all the people are like walking out so someone please remind me at the end of class every Thursday we've been doing this for years we feed a family and you're allowed to send money to to this family um, 
Where are we at? We're, this is not a class on Shabbat, that's for sure. You talk about being thankful that we have things that are forbidden? Yes. You should be doing backflips and excited that because Torah is letting us know. Oh, so I know how we got to this is that we have national revelation because if Torah's, because Judaism's a big ask. It's a big ask. It's asking you to do a lot of stuff. Well, if God wants us to do all that stuff, he's got to talk to us, not to Moses. And it's exactly what happened is God spoke to the whole Jewish people, the entire nation was at Sinai. So we all got to experience that, which is the only thing that makes any sense because it's a gigantic ask. I mean, there's more... There are more laws in my black boxes I wear, my tefillin. There are more black laws in my tefillin than all the world's religions put together. And that's only one commandment. There are more laws in Shabbat, just keeping Shabbat. In that one word called malacha, there are more laws than all the world's religions put together times, times, I don't know, 10, 20, 100 thousands of laws on Shabbat. Thousands. It's a gig- it, It's not just a big ask. It's an enormous ask. And it, it's an impossible ask to give a prophet on a mountaintop or in a cave. You can't give an ask like that to a prophet. And by the way, for Christians yeah, who are brazen, brazen people, if they have any sense of history, but for Christians, they... Um, you ask, I've asked this to priests. I said, you know, once in a while they mess with me, which is really a bad idea. But once in a while, you know, they're walking along with their flock and the priest will start messing with me. And, you know, oh, here's a Jew now. You know, I'm like, hi, I'm a Jew. You know, take a picture. It'll last longer. And, the, and then they, 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 so then the priest decides he's going to, like, show me up, you know, and ask me a question or two. I, once in a while. This only happens, like, once every two years. I've had some amazing exchanges with them, but one of the priests I asked, so do you believe God is a just God? And so I started asking him questions. You know, do, you, do you believe God is a just God? And he says, yeah, he's a just God. I said, do you believe that God gave all the commandments, like the thousands and thousands and thousands of laws to the Jewish nation collectively? He says, yes, that was Mount Sinai. And then I said, um, do you believe that a just God would drop the covenant with them but not tell them collectively? And just have the Jews spend the next 2,000 years living and mostly dying for their commitment to what they heard at Sinai in the exile after the Romans destroyed our, you know, after the Westerners destroyed our, our people here? Our land. Like, you think a just God would just drop the covenant and give it to you without telling them? You want to say he gave it to you? Great. But a just God would have told them. Anyway, from looks on some of your faces, you like that one. It's not original, by the way. I heard it from Rabbi Mechanic, and you can use it. Feel free. Um, What did he say? No, he was like, okay, everybody, we got to go. You know, that's what they always say. Every time it ends like that. Like, once I start asking questions, they, they suddenly got to go. And, and then they're, they're going, and while they're going, you know, out the door of the restaurant or wherever, I always go like, meh, 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 meh
By the way, I, I have no judgment for that. I mean, Jews, Jews are like radically independent people. Like, we would never put up with, with anything like that. You understand? Like, it either meets our intellects or we're not in. You know, that's it. Like, if it's, if it's just it, malarkey, we'll walk. We'll just take a walk. Which is really crazy because we're, the ask is gigantic. And any malarkey means we're taking a walk just because we're Jewish. You know, we're not easy to sell a bill of goods to unless we're low IQ people. But, you know, and there are such things as low IQ Jews, but that's not exactly the, the, the medium. The medium of Jews is very high IQ. So we don't, people with high IQ, you can't just sell them a bill of goods. And so, you know, I understand how you can sell a bill of goods when you have an entire population of people with, with a, you know, a lower IQ, but the Jews are a very high IQ, and they're keeping the biggest ask. You know, we're the ones dealing with the biggest ask. And by the way, we counted the laws in the Asia Torah. Someone counted the laws. It's 55,000 laws. Someone counted all the laws of Judaism. 55,000. Now, you got that revelation. You got the negative commandments. Negative commandments, you should be doing backflips of joy. Because now that you find out that we're really inside a matrix made of light energy, that's ultimately God's energy. So now you know what not to do, just like a surfer knows what not to do. You want to know what not to do. And there's another amazing thing about it is that the universal part of God is that it's for everybody. Like, we don't have a patent on a relationship with God. You ever thought about that? Like, Jews do not have a patent on the relationship with God. I mean, every chimpanzee, every tree, every fish in the sea, every, we all are in a relationship with God. I mean, we're, humans are the most challenged because we actually have this brain that can cut us off from God with, you know, because we do have free will which makes the relationship more powerful obviously if you choose it but we don't have the patent on the relationship with God but what we do have is is because of the revelation we have the we have a higher level of expectation and that's the commandments just a higher level of expectation I mentioned this yesterday, like an ex- someone who's an executive knows things about a company that you know, no, none of the workers know in the company. They have clearance for levels of information, but it, rec- but it comes with great levels of trust. And, and generally you'll notice that in a company, the higher you get towards the executive level, the more clothing she'll wear. You know, like there, there are women who shop women who work in Manhattan in the financial district who have nowhere to shop because there's not enough fabric in most women's clothing stores to cover their body once. And so they have to shop in Borough Park. Like they go into Brooklyn and shop amongst all these Orthodox Jewish women because that's where they sell clothing that an executive woman would wear. But amazingly, a woman, a, a girl, even a 17-year-old girl, in, you know, who could be from a poor family, financially poor, would not be caught dead even showing her elbows. So, like, what's going on with that? Like, I've tried to give water to a little kid who was covered in dirt in a city outside Tel Aviv called B'nai Brak. 
the kid was he looked like he was totally dehydrated. He was covered in dirt, he was playing with all the other kids. They had the small houses there, so everyone's playing on the street and like the buses just kinda like blasting them with soot and like anyway, I get to this like black faced kid and I just felt bad, so I handed him my bottle of water. I said, Drink and the kid said, I need a cup. <laughs> like and this kid's like dying of dehydration. I'm like, What do you mean you need a cup? He says you want me to drink out of a bottle? It's undignified. So here's like a street kid in a slum. I mean, literally, the this this place wins slum of the year every year on the you know when they do the census on income, you know what I'm talking about the financial level of neighborhoods. So it wins slum every year. A kid would rather die than drink out of a bottle. And some poor girl would rather die than be seen with her elbows uncovered. And the answer is, is that we're thousands of years of, of people who are in a relationship with the creator, who are privy to information like an executive, where we, we have a relationship with the creator of the universe, where his children, which makes us princes and princesses. Because if he's the king of the universe, well, that makes you a prince. Now, I just got to mention something, because there's also people from Baltimore in the room. Is anyone else from Baltimore besides these two? Baltimore. So there was a great... Oh, Baltimore. Baltimore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Know this guy? He was at your Shabbos. When I led Shabbos at your house, that's where we met. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. We connected and you came to Israel like... Yeah, you're, the fruits are still being eaten from that Shabbos. They brought me up to Baltimore. So anyway, the um, so when I got here... And, you know, I was in my shorts and my, you know, surf shorts, flip-flops. I hadn't worn underwear in, like, 12 years. Okay? I, I just, I surf six to eight hours a day. Like, why would you ever put on underwear? So, you know, that would just be, that would be, like, one less wave having to deal with that when you got to the beach. So I just kind of lived in my surf shorts. I also slept in them. Like, I had other pairs of surf shorts, but, you know, that's what I wore. So I show up here. I'm in a tank top, you know, with an airbrush magic mushroom on it and, a uh, surf shorts and flip flops, and that's all I had. I mean, I went into Shabbos like this, and these are natural, by the way. I have natural pants, thank God, because being Hasidic with straight pants would be an absolute disaster. And and they and they anyway they they were coming all the way back down my back, you know, with an amethyst stone, and uh, and anyway, I'm sitting in a class with one of the greatest statesmen of our generation. I mean, the guy, his name was Rav, his name was Rav Yaakov Weinberg Zatzal, and he was the Rosh Hashiva of Nair Yisrael, one of the great, great yeshivas of America. But he was like from 3,000 years ago. You literally felt like Moses was talking to you. And it was like he had a golden scale in his mouth because every single word was measured against gold. He, like, and he didn't even, it wasn't like he was pausing to see which word should come out. He just had, he was the, one of the greatest orders, and you can actually hear in low fidelity, but you can actually now get his work, you know, his speeches digitized. Anyway, I had the audacity. I'm sitting in a room full of girls who are wearing, you know, we were 15 boys, 15 girls. He spoke to us every day with his brother, Rav Noach Weinberg, that's all. He spoke to us every day for an hour. And there are pictures of him from behind him, shoot, shot, where you see Rav Yaakov Weinberg, who's like, like, I mean, he's just like larger than life in dignity. And you see these 30 kids 
The guys are all in shorts and tank tops. The girls are in shorts and mini skirts and whatever, you know. They're, most of them are like sitting on the floor right in front of him. And I mean, you look at this shot, you're just like, this guy cared about Am Yisrael. He cared about the Jewish people because he could have been back in Ner Yisrael with everyone bowing down to him over there. Not literally, obviously. But meaning when he walks in the room and the place jumped up. When he walked into us, we, what do we know about standing up for somebody? We didn't stand up. <laughs> How would we have known? So, he, And he'd spent a month with, every summer he'd spent a month doing that, getting no honor whatsoever. And then he would give us everything he's got. Anyway, so he, he said, so questions and answers today. Anyone ask que- any questions you want? So there were a bunch of intellectuals that asked all these intellectual questions, and he just knocked everyone out of the park. But I wasn't an intellectual. I was a surfer from California. So I just said, what's the problem with wearing shorts? Because <laughs> I noticed no one wears shorts here. So I figured it must be a problem. I didn't know if it was a problem, not a problem. So I'm like, what's the problem with wearing shorts? <laughs> I shouldn't have asked. <laughs> His answer was one of the very worst Kirov answers I've ever heard anyone answer in my life. Meaning, uh, you know the word Kirov, like outreach? Word, it's Hebrew for outreach. When you're reaching out to a Jew, you want to be gentle with your answers? This was not gentle. Now, and by the way, I wear shorts. I'm a mountain biker. And so I still serve. So listen to this. Uh, there's the rabbi. This rabbi is collecting for the family, so we'll get to you in a second. And listen to his answer. And I'm going to end with this. He said, you ready for this? This is crazy. He said, if you had I'm not going to use his voice because I won't be able to speak for a week. But I'll, I'll, I'll show you what he spoke like for one or two words. If, if you had any, I'm not, but I'm not doing the rest because it would hurt my throat. If you had any self-respect whatsoever, you would not be asking me that question. <laughs> like the worst answer you could ever. It was just like a sledgehammer, just going. If you had any self-respect, and I was just like. And when he finished the answer, like, you would not be asking me that question. <laughs> and there I was, just like, I don't have any self-respect. I'm coming from a world where self-respect is, like, just not part of the equation. It's just not part of the equation. Personal dignity is just not where it's coming from. So he nailed me. He nailed me. Not saying I put on pants. But after another couple of weeks, I did. Okay, everyone. Um, we're gonna, can you mind grabbing a cup there and we'll put in the stuff that folds by its fish and meat and the stuff that jingles buys Pringles, okay? <laughs> you need Pringles on Shabbos, too. Okay, shalom, everyone. <laughs> You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.